Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. My name is Tim Barton. I'm one of the pastors here. And last week, Andrew Collins, our youth ministry team leader, youth pastor, started our series for the summer on 1 Samuel. And as he started that series... He told us that the context of the book of 1 Samuel comes during the period, right right after the period of the Judges. You can read the book of Judges, and you'll see in this book of Judges this cycle. Um, Here's the summary of all that. We see it in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the nation of Israel was set up um, to have Yahweh, the Lord, the God, be their king. They were supposed to be different than all the other nations, but the people of Israel were like, no, 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 no. We're going to do everything what's right in our own eyes, and then later in 1 Samuel we'll see they even demand from God, we want a king so we can be like everybody else. God tells them, that's not going to work out too well for you. That's my paraphrase. Um, But he gives them a king anyway. We'll get to that. Uh, But for now, the context... Is, the, is this prevailing attitude of disobedience and disregard for God. And that was prevailing in the nation as a whole. That was also what many individuals were doing, doing what was right in their own eyes. And so my question to you this morning is, do you know any individuals like that? Do you know any individuals like that? Anyone who just does what is right in their own eyes? Now, don't think about your neighbors right now. Don't think about your coworkers right now. I'm pausing a minute. Um, Anyway, don't think about your neighbors. Don't think about your coworkers right now. Don't look around the room and think about one another right now. Right? Do you know any individuals like this? And the reality is, we all struggle with this, right? Everybody in this room struggles at times with doing what is right in our own eyes versus doing what God shows us is right and good for us. Every one of us. And I point that out because we need to read and study what we find in the Old Testament just like we read and study what we find in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we see a lot of things that we can learn from in the way God deals with his people and what God calls his people to. And I say that because many prominent pastors, or I'll say some prominent pastors over the last few years, have said that we don't really need to study the Old Testament. We don't really need to know the Old Testament. And I'm just going to say this to you, that while those pastors may say a lot of things that are good and right, on this they are dead wrong unequivocally, without doubt, wrong. And that is important for us to understand because we need what's in this passage this morning. So picking up from last week, in really short summary, I'm going to go back to what Andrew told us about um, because that kind of we need to be there all on the same page as we get to this passage this morning. Um, There's a man named Elkanah, Elkanah, who had two wives. The first one was Hannah. She was the favored one, but she had no children. The second was Panina, who had many sons and daughters, um, the passage told us. 
And she was prideful and arrogant because of her, of her ability to have children. And so in her pride and arrogance, she would provoke and irritate Hannah out of that arrogance. If you don't believe me, go back to verse 6 of chapter 1, and it says it explicitly right there. Okay? She was messing with, provoking, irritating Hannah out of that pride and arrogance. And so we see that when the family goes up to Shallow to make their yearly sacrifice, Elkanah tried to comfort Hannah. It's like, am I not enough? But, but that didn't work, you can imagine. That really wasn't what was her concern was at the moment. Um, but in her distress, in her depression, she went into action. She went into action. You remember what that action was? Andrew told us last week that Hannah went to action and it was to go to the Lord in prayer. We don't often think of that as an action, um, but that's the action that Hannah took. And she went to the Lord in desperate prayer. So desperate, in fact, if you remember from from the, the passage or from reading it before, so desperate that Eli the priest... When he saw Hannah praying, Eli the priest thought Hannah was drunk. She wasn't. (laughs) But it looked to Eli like she was drunk. But in this desperate plea, Hannah promised and vowed to the Lord that if he would give her a son, she would give him to the Lord all the days of his life to serve him. So Hannah makes this vow as she desperately ran to a faithful, covenant-keeping God Trusting him to be faithful, even when she did not see it and was not experiencing it in her life. After this, after that prayer, you'll remember Hannah's countenance changed, didn't it? Her countenance changed. But do you remember when it changed? It changed before her circumstances changed. She went to God in prayer, desperate prayer. That countenance changed because in running to God, she was strengthened. And she and Elkanah worshiped the Lord, and then they went home. And it says, after they went home, the Lord heard her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to Samuel. Now, all that happens, and that brings us to our passage for this morning. We're in chapter 1, I'm beginning in verse 21, but I'm not going to read verses 21 through 28. I'm going to summarize it here, um, the rest of the story, and then we're going to get to Hannah's prayer of response But here's what we're told in the story. Here's the summary of verses 21 through 28. So Samuel has been born. Verse 21 through 28, the summary is Hannah keeps her promise. Hannah keeps her promise. She does what she vowed to the Lord to do. As was the custom of fulfilling her vow, um, Hannah waits until she's nursed and weaned Samuel and takes an offering for the Lord to Eli the priest. And so we see Hannah say in, in verse 27 and 28, for this child I prayed... And the Lord has granted me my, por- my petition that I made known to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. That word translated lent in, in our passage means dedicated or given over to the Lord. So she keeps the promise. She takes Samuel to appear before God, um, before the presence of the Lord, where he would stay, where he would serve the Lord um, as the remainder, for the remainder of his life. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. And if you look in your Bibles, if you have them with you or on your handhelds, the heading in this chapter 2 probably says something about Hannah's prayer. 
right? So if we're just reading along, and then, and then you get to verse 1 of chapter 2, and it says, Hannah prayed. Um, but if you're reading along, and you're following along in this story, or you've just heard me tell it, maybe that's the first time you've heard it, Hannah was barren. Hannah just desperately cried out to God, made a vow to God. God gives Hannah Samuel. You would expect when she comes to prayer, what would you expect her prayer to be? Yeah, thank you, Lord. Um, thank you, Lord, for Samuel, right? Thank you, Lord, for hearing me. Thank you for Samuel. And the prayer to be all about Samuel. I'm fairly confident that many of us, that would probably be our prayer. And, and that's not bad. That's a good thing. We should thank God for all the blessings, right? But in reality, the prayer that we're going to see in just a minute, she actually, there's insinuation of thankfulness for the son himself, but her prayer looks different. And I think we can learn three things from it. Um, when we look at that prayer here in just a moment. I'm going to tell you those three things after we read the passage. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He, pray, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. So I told you there are three things we can learn from this passage, from this prayer. And it's quite a prayer. The first is that God's people, his people, praise him for who he is. God's people praise him for who he is. Now look back at verse 1 and 2. And Hannah, it says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God's people praise him for who he is. That's important for us. Because we live in a time when self-worship is not only tolerated, self-worship is often encouraged and celebrated. I'm not talking about right now even in the world out there. It's true. Right? In the world out there, so to speak. 
But I'm talking about how we operate within the church and within the family of God. You know, often we start with something like this. Instead of starting with who God is, we start with who is God to me? How can I benefit from God? Does God fit with what my experience says is true? Those are often the questions we come with. And those are indications of not starting with who God is. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, that's pretty natural. It's kind of where I would expect, we would expect you to start with those questions. But I want to encourage you to listen to those, the characteristics of God that we talk about this morning. And, and my, my hope and prayer is that you'll see that, that God is much bigger than you think and much better for you than you think. But for followers of Jesus, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we need to begin with the Lord and who he is if we ever want to hope to understand who we are. If we ever want to hope to understand who we are and how we're to live in response to him, we've got to start with him and who he is. And that's exactly what Hannah does in the prayer. The Lord's the focus of her prayer. He's the focus. Verse 1, she says that she is thankful to belong to him. She says her heart exalts in him. Her horn is exalted. The horn was a symbol of being given strength and power, not like to rule over things, but, but to be given this strength and power. And so Hannah's saying that in belonging to the Lord, she can come to him in desperate weakness. And when she does, even though she is desperate and weak, maybe even because she is desperate and weak, she receives power for life in his presence because he is the Lord. Verse 1 also says that her mouth derides her enemies. It says that because she's so thankful for the salvation of the Lord and what that get, that the, the salvation that the Lord gives and brings. All right? And so when we hear, hear the word derides, we kind of think, well, that must mean she's talking bad about her enemies. Her mouth is talking bad about her enemies. But that's not what she's saying here. She's saying she is so exuberant, so um, out there with the, the praise of the salvation of the Lord. She's rejoicing in that so much that she's calling out to all who hear. My hope, my trust is in nothing in this world. You're hoping and trusting in things in this world, and it's not going to get you anywhere. As she rejoiced in the Lord, it showed others that what they were hoping in would do nothing for them. It's in the salvation and presence of the Lord in her life. That's why she is thankful for the Lord. And then in verse 2, she gets more specific. She says, there's no one holy like him. That is... You may think you're pretty good and worthy. Hannah talking to those around them, maybe even us today. You may think you're pretty good and worthy, but there's no one holy like God. That thing you're trusting in, you may think is pretty good, but there's no one holy like God. She says there's no rock like him. You may think you know a lot in this world, but when you look at the way the Bible throughout the whole Bible uses rock in relation to the Lord, the rock of my salvation, he's the rock in whom I trust. You can go on and on. 
what it's saying is, what Hannah's saying here, what God's word teaches us is that God is the rock. He's the unmovable one. Don't think little pebble. Think massive, giant boulder that cannot be moved. That's important. Because it's saying everything else is moving around, but he's steady, he's stable, he's steadfast. And it's why we can run to him. He's the strength that cannot be broken. He's completely holy above all things. He's immutable. Again, that means he will not change. And she says there's no God besides him. The picture here is this idea of if you stand anything, any false God up next to God, then it cannot stand. Now we can think of that figuratively. Anything else you trust in, stood up next to God, it will fall. But I think Hannah's also, there, there's a little bit of, of foreshadowing of what's about to come later in the story because the Ark of the Covenant of God is captured. We'll see this later. I'm going to tell you briefly, the Ark of the Covenant of God is captured by the Philistines. And when it's, that, that symbolifies the presence of God, this Ark of the Covenant of God, and the Philistines place it beside the god Dagon, their god. Right? And every morning when the Philistines in the town would wake up, it was like God had reached out and smacked Dagon in the back of the head and knocked him over. This big idol, this big false god. And so they'd stand him back up and do it again. Right? No, there's no one that will stand beside the God, the only God, the true God. And this is similar to the language that Moses and the Israelites use after they flee from the Egyptians back in Exodus, you remember Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, they, they pull the people out. The, the, Moses leads the people out. They cross the Red Sea. When the Pharaoh's army comes after, the water crashes and kills them, right? Pharaoh's army chasing them and delivers the people of Israel. The song they sing there sings a lot about a lot of these characteristics of God. Why do I tell you that? Because Hannah would have grown up in the people of Israel Hannah would have heard those things told. Hannah would have heard these words about God. She would have heard of these true events being passed down as she grew up. And so Hannah knew the words about God. She had grown in her understanding of them through the years. But in her learning to go to God, in her desperate weakness... In her distress, in her pain, in her sorrow, maybe even in her frustration with God. Now she had a much deeper understanding of what these words and phrases about him meant. She knew them, but life had enabled them to grow deeper and stronger. We have a man in here today who's back with us. Um, and I didn't ask him if I could do this, but um, friend Bob Barks and is a man of God um, who is kind of a walking miracle. Um, we thought a year ago or so that he was going to pass away in the hospital, and he, he didn't, and he said, well, I guess God's not done with me yet. But I can promise you 
that as that's happened, as he's walked through the loss of his, of his, um, his wife, I can promise you that if you take time talking with this man, he will declare the faithfulness and the love and the steadiness, things he's already known about God, but that he continues to experience and proclaim day after day. Y'all, we need each other for that. It's also why with our children, we need to teach them these things about God. It's why with new Christians, we need to teach them these things about God. But please don't stop there because I need you to teach me these things again and again about God every day. And we need one another for that. We need to know him. We need to praise him for who he is. And that takes a lifetime of growing in him. Don't expect it from each other overnight. Right? You use the children illustration, you know, that, that takes time for them to grow and learn, right? Well, as Christians, children and adults, it takes time to keep growing and learning these things. And so we need to be patient with one another and we need to be intentional to support one another and support God's work in one another's lives. But the, but the inverse is also true, right? We also need to not say we're being patient and what we're actually doing is being lazy or distracted or having a lack of intentionality. So we need both those things because God's people praise him for who he is and we need to intentionally encourage one another to do so. We need each other bad for that. That leads us to our second point that we see from this prayer, and that is that God's people are humbled because of who he is. Verse 3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. What Hannah's drawing out here is that there's no place for arrogance or pride in ourselves or our accomplishments. In the context of this passage, who do you think Hannah's talking about here? She's talking about Penina. Penina. I can't say it the same way twice. Um, she's, she's talking about her. <laughs> she was proud of herself because she had ability to have children. But she had no reason to be proud and boast in her own ability. It made her arrogant because she didn't understand that the blessings she had received were from God. And so instead, she took credit for what she had done and accomplished in having these children. The obvious question for us here as we pause a minute is where are we taking credit for the blessings God has given us in this life? Where are you taking credit for the blessings God has given you in this life? See, Hannah knew because she had learned that there was no place for pride and arrogance in herself or no place for pride and arrogance in ourselves. She knew that it was by the Lord that life was given. She knew that it was by the Lord that blessings were received. She knew that he was omnipotent. That means he knew all things. 
And it was by him that actions and hearts were weighed. And so she also understood that we need to view ourselves in contrast to God. Now, I've told you before, my wife says with, with, our, with my boys and even with me that we don't need to compare ourselves to others. Um, and she's right about that completely. But the one place that this is good and okay is to contrast ourselves with God because we actually need to do that. Because sometimes we might start thinking a little highly of ourselves, and so we need to stop and go, how does God work? How does God act? How is he different? And I think that's what Hannah's doing here, um, expressing in a series of mirisms. You know what that is? It's a series of opposite things, extremes, to really draw out a point. And he does, Hannah does that in verses 4 through 8, talking about God. And in them, we see that God works in, in contrast to the way that we think and act. Let's look at them for just a minute. I'm just going to walk through them. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken. That is, the sign and symbol of military strength and might. That's going to be broken because you can't trust in that. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who don't seem mighty, the Lord is going to give strength. He says, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. That is, those who... Who, were, who think they've earned all this food and, and everything's good, they're going to be hungry because they didn't accomplish that. But the hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She who thinks she's accomplished this is forlorn, but the barren has born children. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up this extreme of as low as you can go and as high as you can go. The Lord makes poor. The Lord makes rich. The Lord brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What's he saying there? He said, the Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Do we understand that if you stop and look around this room, that every one of us was part of the ash heap. It's a picture of being dead in our sin and burn up beyond recovery. We couldn't do anything on our own to recover it. And if you think that you started somewhere else, a little higher up on this chain, you're not getting the grace of God. You're not fully getting the benefit of understanding the gospel. Because we all started on the ash heap. But Jesus. You see what it says? Not only were we raised up a little bit, we were raised to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That is because of what Jesus has done. The proud and the arrogant miss God's work. We miss his faithfulness because when we act in pride and arrogance, we think that we've accomplished things. 
Instead, we should be humbled by who he is. And that gives us hope. That's the third thing we see from this prayer. His people have hope because of who he is. Look at verse 9 and 10. His people have hope because of who he is. Verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So first, he will guard the feet of his faithful. He's saying the Lord will guard the feet of his faithful. We, we have hope because of who he is. He's going to guard the feet of his faithful. The Lord never, look at me. The Lord never, the one who's the rock, he never leaves his people. Never. Samuel's going to need to know that later when he grows up. It's going to be necessary for Christians to know throughout world history as people are being burned at the stake and hung and killed for the name of Christ. And it's important for us to know today the Lord will never leave his people. He's guarding us in all that we go through. And you know what that means? It means that the evil one will not prosper. It means, if, if you're in here today and you're like, I'm not sure if this evil one thing is real. Oh, he's real. If you look around the world, you can see it. Where God has removed his restraining hand and allowed things to happen. The evil's there. But he will not prosper. Because God will judge his adversaries. It says the wicked will be cut off because man cannot stand by their own might even when they think they can. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces and ultimately though it might feel like we're being broken to pieces at times, maybe it feels that way for you right now. It might feel that way as we look at the world around us but ultimately God has declared victory and that victory will be fully seen and known in the days to come. Here's how we know. Hannah finishes the prayer. He will give strength to his anointed. He will give strength to his anointed. What's interesting here is this word anointed, they, they talk about kings being anointed. Right? But this word anointed is the same word used, it, it translated as Messiah the promised one who will come. And so what Hannah's saying here is the Messiah is coming. The Messiah, the one God promised is coming. She can't even see him yet. She's saying, I know all this is true because the Lord is going to strengthen the Messiah. Mary and, uh, you know, Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55, uses the same type of language. And what she's saying there is she's taking this and she's now applying it to Jesus. She said, here's the one we've been looking for. He's the hope. He's the Messiah. 
Now, here's what's great. We live in that now. We live in that now. We see parts of that. We're a part of seeing things. Uh, people begin to understand this and see this. We're a part of seeing people be able to walk with him and run to him in faith, even when circumstances make it seem like he's not there. But it leads us to my favorite passage of Scripture. When it talks about the culmination and the, the ultimate end of what it's going to be, Hannah's saying the king, the deliverer, is coming. Um, he said, she says he's coming. We say he's coming again. And then it's going to be fulfilled. He will accomplish these things fully. And that's what we see a picture of in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. And I'm just going to read it for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is what's going to happen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is true now. And it is, it is where we go to find that hope. But it's going to be so much more true, fully true then. And here's what it looks like. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, this Messiah, this anointed one. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. His people have hope because of who he is. This morning, as we come to the Lord's table, I just want to say again, and if you are a follower of Jesus, or if you become a follower of Jesus, you can have hope because of who God is. But don't trust. Don't trust in your own accomplishments. Don't take credit for the blessings God has given. So as we prepare for the Lord's table today, I want to ask you, Will you take a moment and will you confess before the Lord the, any places where you are taking credit for the, for the blessings he's given or where you're saying, yeah, I did that. And will you repent of that this morning? And if this is for the first time today, I'd encourage you to say, Lord, I don't fully understand what all this means, maybe but I want to learn to believe you are who you say you are. Will you change me? Will you help me? So take a moment, pray this, and then we'll come together at the Lord's table, this full picture of the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com 
download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at The Vine CC. Have a great week.